The house sat on top of a red clay hill and no secure foundation had ever been poured. Instead, the small white shotgun house rested like a tired soldier who'd seen way too many battles on top of cement blocks at each corner. The front of the house was higher than the back so that when one climbed the uniquely compromised steps and entered the enclosed front porch, stepping onto the screaming wooden boards leading into the living room and walked straight back toward the kitchen one was walking slightly downhill. Three main rooms and a bathroom with a sink and toilet only. A large, thin metal tub, multi-gallon tub, hung loosely on the side of the house so that once heated, bath water could be poured and the family could wash the dust from the day from their bodies and from their clothing. I was seated in the middle room of that house when my grandmother, my great-grandmother's voice broke into the silence like a drummer playing in a quiet cemetery. She advised us, me and my great-grandfather, that we were going to the movies tonight. She said, we're going to go to the movies and we're going to see Guess who's coming to dinner? I remember how animated the house was when she said that, and G.I. Joe had to go. Uh, I was excited, not because I knew what the movie was about. I did not. I was excited because I'd never been to the movies before. The year was 1967, if I have it right, maybe 68. I was encouraged to put on my Sunday best, and so I put on the pants I'd wear to church, and I put on a, a clean shirt. My great-grandmother, Corella Mason, and my great-grandfather, Major Mason, and I put on our jackets, and we walked the not-so-short distance from our home in Marshall, Texas, on Travis Street, to the Paramount Theater, which was downtown on the main drag. We entered into what I thought was pure darkness. My eyes were fighting to adjust so that I could see the popcorn that uh, the aroma was hanging just above my nose, lingering there. We bought a small bag and we made our way up to the balcony, up the stairs and took our seats just as the curtain was being pulled back. Those of you who've seen this movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, can imagine the kind of impact this had on a young black boy growing up in the South. The opening scene was in an airport, I think, with Sidney Poitier. I'm talking Dr. John Wade Prentice was his name. And he got off the airplane. He was tall. He was handsome. He was black, I'm talking John Wright black. He was, he was charismatic. He was suave and smooth, not, not unlike myself. And he strolled through the airport like he owned the joint. 
He got off the plane with his young white fiance and their body language signaled their affection for one another. They were in love. But there was a problem. These two loving young people who had met in Hawaii and fallen in love and decided to get married had yet to tell their parents that they were even in a relationship, let alone they were planning to get married in the not too distant future. They met while Dr. Prentice was lecturing in Hawaii. They'd spent all of their free time together, and, but once informed of their plans, the parents were pretty sure that these two bright young people were about to make a mistake that was going to severely stack the odds in life against them. I need to paint this picture. I need you to see it. He was black, John Wright black. She was white. There was no gray. Her father was a wealthy insurance, a wealthy newspaper publisher there in San Francisco, played by Spencer Tracy. Her mother, founder and owner of a well-known museum right down the street in San Francisco, played by Catherine Hepburn. She'd been raised in a house with a black maid all of her life, all the best and finest schools, all the best and finest foods, all the best and finest clothes were at her fingertips and she must have moved in circles that included those making decisions, not just those who were being impacted by decisions made. Dr. Prentice, not so much. He was much less privileged. He was the son of a pensioned off mailman, his mom, a school teacher. He had public schools in his rearview mirror. Good fortune, hard work, Positive circumstances had allowed him to become an internationally known medical doctor who lectured and worked around the world. Think of the list of obstacles that stood between these two people. Legal consequences. During a fight with his father, Dr. Prentice, Sidney's character, heard his father say, what you're trying to do here or about to do here is still illegal in 16 or 17 states. Interracial marriage was still illegal in several states. Think of the social obstacles their children would have to face. They wouldn't be black enough for the black folks. They wouldn't be white enough for the white folks. They'd be ducking to avoid insults that'd be hurled their way, at least in middle school. Think of the grind, just grinding and rowing against the social tide. If you close your eyes now, you can imagine the kinds of whispers they'd hear in restaurants, standing in the line trying to check out for groceries, standing in line at the bank, nosy neighbors who don't want to live next to Negroes, and they ain't scared to tell anybody that they don't want to do so. The odds, I tell you, were greatly stacked against them. This movie has had a great impact on me. I watch it probably twice a year at least once with my daughter. The characters are meaningful. It is beautifully written. It is exquisitely performed. There is racially impactful symbolism all over the screen. And after some drama, the parents somehow agreed not to protest the marriage. They decided to support their kids in their effort to forge a family 
even in these perilous circumstances. The movie ends with that music. You remember that song? You got to give a little. Take a little. Let your heart, your poor heart, break a little. That's the story of. That's the glory of love. Beautiful song. Here's the problem I have with the movie. I was only four, so I didn't notice it then. But I watched it again when I was in college, and I noticed that the most important part of the movie was left out. The movie ended while they were singing that song. Sidney and his fiance were going to get married. The family sat down to dinner. We did not get a chance to see anything that happened in terms of the obstacles that they were facing. They simply walked away, we sang a song, and everybody lived happily ever after. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that David is coming to visit us today. And David is coming to say, not so fast. Not so fast. I, I've got a story to tell, and I don't have. My story doesn't come with a cliffhanger. You don't have to wonder about what I was up against. And so I'm inviting you, and I've invited David, I'm inviting you to come and go with me and look at, walk around inside this story of David and Goliath. I won't take time to read it. I think most of us have been exposed to it. But I want to just take a look. Let us take a trip down this trail with David and see what kind of treasures we can pull out of this trek through troubled times. What is the question? The question is, what does one do when standing face with difficult, face to face with difficulty that's too deep to swim in, or around, or over, or under? What does one do? How should we behave when circumstances threaten not only our livelihood, but the gift of life itself? I got three suggestions, and I'm going to take my seat. First suggestion coming from David's story is this. There is, when facing overwhelming odds, there is hope to be found in focusing on one specific goal. This biblical story of David and Goliath has long been a favorite. I stopped counting years ago, but I must have talked about it or around it hundreds of times in these 40 years that I've been in and around pulpits. As a child, some well-meaning person in Texas told me David was a brave kid. He saw a giant, threw a rock, hit him, and went home. Uh, that's how the story was taught. And I'm a little bit embarrassed standing here today to say to you that that satisfied my curiosity uh, for a very, very long time until I learned from one of my teachers. She said to me, John, you have a right to bring your questions and your curiosity to any text, any story, any book that you read. You have a right to ask questions about the motives, about what caused a character to say what they said, to do what they did. You have a right to ask questions of the text. And so I've been wrestling with David for the last few weeks, trying to gain a sense of why he did some of what he did. And I want to just dig around in it here with you today. And I've invited David to join us in the presence of all gathered here today. David's coming here. He'll be sitting in the chair that Brother Khalil was sitting in in just a moment. I want you to count down from three to one with me, and David will appear. Ready? Three, two, one. David. 
Okay, well, well, that, that didn't work. But <laughs> I, 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 do have, I do have a secondary plan. How about this? How about I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what questions I asked of David, and then I'll let you know what, what David's answers were. Here, here's my first question for David. I asked David, David, what was your contingency plan? Had there been more than one giant? What were you planning to do? How were you going to handle yourself, little Mr. Boy who knows everything? What, what were you going to do had there been another giant? I was expecting a simple answer. David's answer was not simple. David said to me, John, what possible difference would that have made? You can't fight but one giant at a time. This little boy educates us in this situation. Hard to fight more than one giant at a time. Hard to fight drug and alcohol addiction and sexual abuse at the same time because they're friends. Uh, they hold hands, they work together. Hard to fight more than one giant at a time. I spent 13 hours in November in the emergency room in the East Bay. I'm a type two diabetic, have been since 1996. And so I go every 90 days to get A1C check and some other stuff they look at to make sure that I'm okay. Did my normal tests, got home, doctor called and said, John, you need to go immediately to the nearest emergency room. Have them hook you up to an IV and do these tests again. We need to see if what we're seeing is, is clear. And so I went. And I was in the uh, short version is I had a CAT scan and 360. I had a ultrasound and they did all these things to me. And about the close to the end of the 13th hour uh, in the emergency room in Kaiser at Vallejo, California, I was in the bed, lights turned low uh, in the emergency room, eyes closed, heard a nurse come in. I did not move opened my eyes just a little and I saw her pick up a clear bag and start putting my belongings into the bag. I thought for a moment I had died and they forgot to, <laughs> uh, they forgot to tell me. But she started putting my stuff into this bag and I sat up and said, so, so, so what you doing? And she said, I'm, I'm, uh, we decided not to do the surgery today, we're gonna do the surgery tomorrow. Well, this is the first I've heard of surgery. Uh, and so I said to her, uh, so, so who's getting cut? Who, who, who are they planning to do surgery on? And she said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. She realized that she had said a bit much and the nurses had not yet briefed me that they had found gallstones. They wanted to take out my gallbladder and they wanted to do it right away because my uh, pancreas was being compromised because uh, there's a doctor in the house who could tell you how the little duct could be impacted and my uh, I have pancreatitis uh, basically is what's happening there and so anyway I, I didn't know about the surgery so I decided well you know what I think you probably want to have a doctor uh, come in here and talk to me face to face about this so-called surgery uh, before you just have me move upstairs 
and she said, I'm so sorry. And the doctor came in and talked to me, gave me all the briefing, told me that it's safe. They don't cut you open four pokes and we suck it out and you're all good. Go back to work in three, four days. <clears throat> I decided to get my clothes, put on my shoes and go home. And I did. I've worked on my diet. I'm working on exercise routine. I'm a type two diabetic. I ate my way into this situation. Maybe I can eat my way out. We'll find out. But I decided to go home and fight the biggest giant I know. I'm diabetic. I've got to get those numbers in line. And hopefully some of these other matters will rectify. If not, uh, there'll be a couple of Sundays you won't see me and I'll be back down at, at Kaiser uh, getting that uh, procedure. But I checked myself out and I went home to fight one giant because you can only fight one giant at a time. Second suggestion I get from David's story is this. When facing overwhelming odds, not only is there hope in focusing on one specific goal, but there is help in leaning into your specific history. There were some folks around David who didn't think David was worthy or up to the task. They were worried about David's level of experience. Who are you, David, to go out and fight a nine-foot giant? Who do you think you are? David said to them, I've already defeated a lion. I've already defeated another animal I know how to fight. I've been in battles before. That's David's message to those of us up against overwhelming odds. Don't, don't let anybody make you think that you're powerless against what you face. You've been in battles before and you are still here. Let me ask you directly, what battle did you bring with you here to this service? this morning? Have you and your spouse decided this, this marriage that you've worked so hard on is no longer worth fighting for? Had your health started to fail you and made you wonder how you're going to survive a recent diagnosis? Have you been contemplating taking your own life because you think those who are left can handle this messy world better and you're just tired. Are you one disappointment away from giving up on your dream simply because the cost seems too much to pay? Do you feel lonely? Do you feel isolated? Are bills mounting up and you don't know how you're going to get the finances under control? What are the giants that visit you when you turn off the lights? at night. David and I have come to say that half the battle of doing anything well is having done it before. David's model suggests that we may need to redefine ourselves by looking more closely at what our skills already are. Don't allow your fear of the giant to blind you to your personal history of overcoming. You remember the uh, first Obama campaign by uh, the very first one. Uh, there was a special kind of brilliance to the first Obama 
campaign. It, was, it wasn't tied to the fact that Obama was brilliant, although he was and is. It wasn't tied to the excellent strategic planners that he had around him, although he had those. It, it wasn't related to the kind of fundraising they did with small donors, although they did that and they did it well. What stood out to me as a galvanizing principle was a kind of rhetorical flourish. You remember? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. He'd, he'd be on the, on the campaign trail talking about some kind of policy, and he would, he would lay out what was wrong and describe the, the problem in a way that made you think that problem lived right next door to impossible. And then when he got ready to close, he would turn and spit out that phrase, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Can. That's why my ancestors sing and sing so proudly, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. I've always felt like we needed to take out the do, I do believe, and change it to I still believe in that song, because still carries the weight of what we're really trying to say. Uh, you, you, you brought us here as, as, as slaves, and, and we still believe. You, you, you raped our wives, you raped our children, and we still believe. Anybody know who Willie Lynch was? Ever heard that name before? Willie Lynch is the person we get the word lynching from. Willie Lynch had slaves in the West Indies, and when the slave owners in Virginia were having difficulty with their slaves, they called for Willie Lynch to teach them about his methods. This is what Willie Lynch said. Feel free to edit this out, Amy, if it's too strong for you. He said, he said, take the strongest, the meanest, the most restless nigger on the plantation. Strip him of his clothes, tar and feather him, tie one leg to each horse, beat that horse until it rips him apart, then beat and bullwhip the other male niggas. Don't kill them. Make sure they're still able to breathe. And my people sing, deep in my heart, I still believe. Can you feel the force of the word still? I still believe we shall overcome someday. Do I have time for one more? Uh, not only when facing overwhelming odds, not only is there hope, in sticking with one specific goal. Not only is there help in leaning into your own history, because you can do it, you've done it before. There is, uh, there is power in getting comfortable with the notion that there are some things God cannot do. Okay, all right. Uh, that, that, call, it, call it what you want. Call it what you want. There, there, are, there, there is power 
in the notion, getting comfortable with the idea that there, is so, there, are, there are some things that the universe, that God, whatever you want to call it, simply cannot do. I, I had one last question for David. David, the question was, something happened in this story that was really baffling to me. David was standing outside, and here's Goliath. Every day he would give forth his normal call of defiance making sure they knew he was there and, and he was there to kill them. And then one day, Goliath starts running toward the battle line. You ever read that story? First Samuel chapter 17. I don't want to put too much Bible in here. Uh, there was there's a story. He starts running toward David. And what amazed me was what David did. David did not run the other way. David started running toward Goliath. Okay, all right. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't hear that. Uh, Dave, Dave, Goliath is a nine-foot giant. David is a little boy. Goliath run toward, runs toward the little boy. The little boy starts running toward the giant. Biblical scholars say that David ran toward Goliath because he expected God to intervene. He expected God to intervene. No, I'm not going down that road. I know where I am. Uh, but I, I, I want you to know what David's expectation was. Th this is where David and I part ways. With all due respect to the biblical scholars, with all due respect to David and, and, and his courage, I maintain that David did the right thing, but for the wrong reason. Uh, he was expecting God to intervene. But running toward the battle line was a damn good idea because what do you think would have happened if David had allowed Goliath to hit him first? What would have happened if David had allowed the giant to land the first blow? The, the battle would have been over. Israel would have been defeated. Running toward the battle line was a, a really good idea. David says, don't be afraid to be aggressive when faced with overwhelming odds. Don't expect necessarily for God to intervene, but just know that you cannot allow your fear to paralyze you in the face of tight consequences. Growing up, I had two major fears, uh, fear of the dark and fear of the dead. Uh, I got over both of them later on, but we were in the I was in the first grade walking up Travis Street in Marshall to Sam Houston Elementary School. It was around Easter, and it was dark outside. Did I tell you I'm afraid of, of the dark? We were walking up the hill, and it's dark outside. My brother knows I'm afraid of the dark, but my brother goes off, and he hides himself so I cannot see him. So I'm standing outside in the dark. I I'm afraid of the dark, and so my brother will not reveal himself. I'm calling my brother's name, asking him to come out. Please let me know where you are. He won't come out, and I'm standing outside in the dark. I mentioned that I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of the dark. I turned around to look behind me, and there was a graveyard. Did I mention I was afraid of the dead? And so I stopped screaming, and I started running because I realized I could not allow my fear to paralyze me. David says, turn your fear into fuel, not frustration. And you have a chance against overwhelming odds. David and I thought it wise 
to emphasize that the giants in our lives are real. Their presence is real. Their persistence is real. Their potential is real. Not only is it real, but it's often reproducible. The potential havoc they can rain down on us and our otherwise steady and stable lives is monumental. Is there anybody here who knows anything about fighting Goliath? The good news is that there is hope, there is help, there is power available according to this young boy named David. Hope to be found in focusing on one specific goal. Help to be found in leaning into your own powerful history of overcoming and power to be found in getting comfortable with the idea there's some things you got to do for yourself and God cannot do them for you. I'm going to file this sermon under overpromised and underdelivered. Full transparency, I don't know what it's like for you to deal with overwhelming odds. I don't know what are good, better, are best practices and strategies for you when you deal with what is overwhelming you. I cannot vouchsafe with certainty that the suggestions of David are powerful enough for you to apply them in your own life, but I have to remain hopeful, at least in my own situation. I gave up magical thinking long, long time ago. But I need to tell you that the folks who raised me, the people who cared for me when I couldn't care for myself, believed in a place beyond what we can see. If my mama was here, my grandmother was here, if my great-grandmother were here. She would say to you, there's difficulty in this life, but there is another life. She'd, she'd say there's, there's heartache and pain in this life, but there is another life. I, I, I know there are enough degrees in this room to heat up the city of Palo Alto. I, 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 get, I get where you are, and I don't buy the theology either, but I have a question for you. What if they were right. What if what they said to me was true? There, there is another life. Heartache here, another life there. Tell me about the world to come. Oh, they tell me of a home far beyond the sky. They tell me of a land far away. They tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Oh, they tell me of an uncloudy day. They tell me of a home where my friends have gone. They tell me of a land far away where the tree of life in eternal bloom sheds its fragrance through that uncloudy day. They, they, they tell me that God smiles on God's children there and God's smile drives all their sorrows away. And they tell me that no tears ever come again in that lovely land of uncloudy day.
Oh, the land of cloudless day. Oh, the land of an uncloudy day. They tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Oh, yes, they tell me of an uncloudy day. <laughs>